Hello and welcome to a Wonder River History section. I'm your host Oliver and I thank you for joining me for episode 3 of my new podcast. Now if you've listened to the other two episodes, know that I greatly appreciate the support you're giving the podcast. It absolutely means the world to me, but it also means a lot for me to share my love for history with you. It's nice. It not only might teach you a tidbit that you may not have known, even a fun fact, and whether or not it's that key bit that you need for that assignment, or whether it might be just a clever bit of pub trivia. Either way, you'll thank me later when you win that pub quiz in a few years' time. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But, um, so, following on chronologically, which is ironic, given how I said I would find it hard to stick to the pattern, we are moving to the Soviet Union, So, which was alluded to at the end of the last episode. So, what is the Soviet Union? Well, the Soviet Union, and that is its actual name, was actually, if you looked on a world map at any time, from pretty much the start of the 1920s all the way to the mid-1990s, where Russia is, alongside a load of the other Central Asian countries and even some of Eastern Europe, you would find the USSR, which stands for the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. So, for instance, modern-day countries such as Kazakhstan, uh, Tajikistan, Armenia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, even the Eastern Bloc countries of, you know, Lithuania, Hungary, Yugoslavia, they were all essentially buffer states, uh, like a buffer zone between the East and the West, and they were all part of the Soviet Union. They had the same national anthem. Proletariats of the world unite. Workers of the world unite. Every flag for every country had the hammer and sickle. However, for other Soviet republics, they would have a little twist on the flag to represent their culture, but the ideal, the ideal image remained the same. Now, the Soviet Union was called that, and the term was coined in the early 20s. And Lenin, the man who had essentially gotten the ball rolling, was alive for maybe a couple of years into the existence of it before he would die. And... As we know from history, Joseph Stalin would be the man to take the reins. And whilst Lenin saw communism... Th- th- this is the thing that you need to understand. Communism at the time, compared to the other social structures of the world, was a new concept. It hadn't really been tried, per se. Um, and Lenin actually didn't see... You see propaganda of you know communism and socialism... And you usually attribute it to World War II, and, you know, there are parts of that that we will talk about. But for the early 20s and the late 1910s, communism was seen as a solution. It was seen as a a, so, a social system where workers weren't mistreated, where everyone was equal, where you got the same pay for the same job, and where, you know, workers... Well, it's debatable to say whether or not they really had rights as such. And very, it was a very, very strict system, and under no dictator would it be as strict than Joseph Stalin. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Joseph Stalin. So he's born in, he technically he's born in the Russian Empire, in what will be now modern-day Georgia. And a, a little tidbit which I actually covered in the last episode, Joseph Stalin isn't actually his real name. Um, So Stalin in Russian means uh, steel, or a man of steel, Um, in the same way that Lenin's actual name wasn't Lenin. Uh, They're in fact code names, and they were were more so aliases than anything else. So he is, he's the guy who does the dirty work for the Soviets. 
So back in their early days, the Soviets didn't have a lot of money, <laughs> neither. And if you weren't the Tsar in Russia, you likely didn't have a lot of money either. So in order to fund all their resistance campaigns, all you know, setting up the Soviets, the Soviets needed money. So they would look to Stalin, and him and a select group of people would go on heists, they would rob banks, they would pretty much anything they could do to get money, they would do. And uh, a lot of this tomfoolery ended up in Stalin being exiled to Siberia. Now, Siberia is, you know, a lot of people, a common misconception, it's not a country, is Siberia, it is in fact a region of Russia towards the far east, towards the Asian half of Russia, where it is notoriously freezing, and where you have worker camps, which are set up in the far east, where basically, they, you know, you would be sent, and so he, he, he does his stint in Siberia, and he comes back, and it only seems to have toughened him up. So, Lenin dies... Stalin takes over. What then? Well, as as the status quo from the First World War, for the most part, is kind of the same. So from the First World War episode, I talked about the Triple Entente. Britain, France, and Russia. But except now you don't have Russia, you have the Soviet Union. But for a, for a time, the bond was, to an extent, still there. But what happened? What what did Stalin do to this group of people? What did he do to this country that was so bad that he is painted in this image that we see him as today? Well, let's find out. So we talked about how Stalin and all of his political opponents at the time of his, you know, when he takes the reins, conveniently go missing or they're killed. Now, once he's in power, he wants to solidify his place. So he suppresses all opposition to the Communist Party, and he then implements a command economy. So a command economy is basically when a government takes direct control of what the economy, of you know, how money is being spent and where it goes. Um, and as a result, you basically have um, massive, like mass industrialization. And th what this results in is what you ha what you call five year plans, and d to Stalin's credit, he, I, now he does he does it for the complete wrong reasons, but the idea he had wasn't terrible. So, for, for the longest time, Russia, especially industrially, had been behind Europe for a very long time, um, even in the build up to the forties in World War Two. Russia had a lot of ground to make up, so the Soviets wanting to industrialize wasn't in of itself a bad thing. The problem was to the extent that they were doing it. So the best comparison I can make here is the Great Leap Forward, which is what happened in communist China under Mao Zedong and the People's Liberation Army. So what essentially happened, and the same thing happens here in Russia, is that in order to build all these factories, in order to build the industry, in order to get the country to where it needs to be, you have to, you have to implement a command economy. But the problem is, for all this money to go into the industry, it means that very, very little of this money, if any, goes to the population and goes to the civilians. So now what you have is kind of a, it's kind of a double-edged sword. In that he's damned if he does, cause, but he's also damned if he doesn't. 
If he doesn't put the money into the industry, then Russia will take longer and longer and will still continue to lag behind the rest of Europe. However, if he does this, he is essentially starving the population, because now the population can't afford to, fight, to find food, they can't grow their own food, because as soon as they do, the government will come and take it off them, just as they do with the money. And this is what the five-year plan was. Now, the time period of five years is basically Stalin's theory, if you will, that it will take five years for the Soviet Union to catch up with the rest of Europe in on the scale of industry. Now, which doesn't, to in the modern day, might not sound like a very long time. For back in the 30s and before, like the 30s where five-year plans were implemented, five years was an incredible turnaround time, and it seemed nigh impossible that it would be able to be done. But Stalin didn't care for that. It was going to be done, whether the peasants and the people liked it or not. And now, so as a result of that, during, I believe it was 1934, you have a famine, which wasn't natural. It was completely done you know, by man, purely because of the need for industry and the lack of care towards the people and crops that they would grow. So now you have a famine that is entirely Stalin and the Soviets' fault. Um, so... And so that you you know the people have enough reason to have already hated the Bolsheviks going into the formation of the Soviet Union. Stalin again was just adding more fuel to the fire. So then you also have the event known as the Great Purge. Now I talked about how when Stalin initially took power, most of his opponents had already gone to prison. Well, notice how I said most. You see, Stalin at the time was quite paranoid, and he had reason to be. As with Lenin before him, attempts were made on his life. Not Stalin, Lenin, of course, but Stalin didn't want the same to happen. So, checkmate. You can't have people making attempts on your life if there is no one to oppose you. So the Great Purge was the mass arrest, but also killing of people who Stalin either perceived to be a political threat, or actually were a political threat. Some, Most of the people arrested and sent to the gulags were actually innocent. They didn't have anything against Stalin, but Stalin was that paranoid, and he was not willing to take any chances. Also, you are, you know, I mentioned the gulags, um, very rudimental versions back in the 20s where both Lenin and Stalin had done time, uh, you know, pre-Soviet Union, that, that the idea of gulags uh, not only spreads further east, but more of them are built. Now, if you don't know what a gulag is, the best comparison is like a concentration camp or an extermination camp that will later be used by Nazi Germany uh, during the Holocaust. But the Soviets, they more so did it for mass labour in that you would more so be worked to death. Now, of course, a lot of the Soviet Union's history and a lot of major events coincide with World War II. Now, whilst... I, World War II will be its own separate episode, I can assure you of that. I will be going over bits of history that coincide with World War II a bit in less detail, just because it will give me more opportunity to do that later down the line. So, with that said, you go further down the 30s. Now, at the time in Central Europe, you have the rise of Hitler and the rise of fascism in Nazi Germany. Now, the Soviets and the Nazis hated each other for lack of a better term fascism versus communism they were two social they were two styles of government 
and society that they that opposed each other and could not agree on anything. Now, the Soviets re- reached out to the West. They reached out to Britain and France and the like to try and form an anti-fascist alliance. But the West weren't budging, and they couldn't, mainly because the West already figured they could bring Hitler to the negotiation table in order to prevent the outbreak of a Second World War. I mentioned it briefly how Britain, the reason Britain was so hesitant to join the First World War was because of diplomacy, and they didn't, you know, they figured it could be resolved the same way, and this was the exact same case. Nothing to that extent had really changed. And of course, there's a reason why they call, only called World War One the First World War. So August 1939, talks with the Allies and the West in general have failed. There is not going to be a non-fascist alliance. So what do the Soviets do? Well, they go and do what pretty much no one in the West was expecting to happen. The Soviets go and sign the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact with Nazi Germany, which is a non-aggression pact, that they will not attack each other. After that, the two begin to invade Poland, and they both, well, for all of Poland's resistance, they get absolutely smacked by the Soviets and the Nazis. But the Soviets don't stop there. The Baltic states that had previously gained independence after... The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, signed after World War One, so, you know, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and, you know, other states. The Soviets then move further west and just straight up annex them. So, they try and integrate them into the Soviet Union. The, the relative peace between the two is going to last maybe two years. And in 1941, Hitler launches Operation Barbarossa. And I don't know what it is with the theme of historical leaders trying to invade Russia, but you would think, you would think maybe just don't, you know, Napoleon back during back during the Napoleonic Wars, maybe Hitler would have taken a leaf out of his book. Apparently not. Uh, the invasion fails, which is surprising when you consider that to this day Barbarossa was the largest invasion and had the largest standing army for a ground invasion in history. Now, not to take away from the effort that the Nazis made, they had made it to within only a few miles out of Moscow. German soldiers reported that they could see the spires of the Kremlin through the blizzard. But... And it turned out that would be the very thing that would save the Soviets. You see, what Napoleon hadn't prepared for nearly, well, over a hundred years earlier, Hitler had equally not prepared for this time. Russian winters. Now, winters by themselves in several parts of the world can be quite extreme. But nowhere was this more true than in Russia. You You had it to a point where horses used by the Nazis were dying and they had to use them to find their way back in the piles of snow that would build up, which were astronomically high. You had oil inside cars and tanks alike beginning to freeze up because it was that cold, effectively stalling the advance. Then you have the ultimate counterattack. You see, what the Germans weren't used to, the Soviets had to grow up with. So Stalin calls in troops from the Siberian front, who are accustomed to this type of weather, 
and they push the Russians back. Uh, they put sorry, they push the Nazis back. Then you have the Battle of Stalingrad, and with a city named after the leader of the country, it would come as no surprise that the Germans had effectively bled the city dry in order to try and take it to try and go for the oil fields in the Caucasus. Yet again, this would be a failure by the Nazis. So, World War II drags out and it happens. Another major, well, I say a major failure for the Soviets, but almost a humiliation on their part is the Winter War. Now, again, something that I don't think is talked about anywhere near as much, which is a war between the Soviet Union and Finland, which would go on for several years, quite a few years taken up by World War II. I believe it started either in 39 or 40. I, I fail to remember when it ended. And you have, the, I can't pronounce his name, but you have a Finnish sniper who is reported to have had, to this day, the most confirmed kills of any sniper throughout history. And whilst the Soviets did eventually get the Finns to sue for peace, it was seen as an embarrassment when you consider how small Finland was compared to the rest of the Soviet Union. So World War II comes and goes. You have the Soviets pushing through to the west to take Berlin, and in August of 1945, I believe it to be August anyway, you have Soviet troops flying the, the hammer and sickle above the Reichstag in Berlin. Hitler kills himself. The world is at peace again, right? Well, come on. Would I, be, would I really be talking about it like this if the world really was at peace? No. No, because you see, even with fascism and Hitler gone, the general distrust that Stalin held towards the West was very much still there. Now, the West at this point consisted of America, the UK, and still France to an extent, but the main enemy was now the United States. You see, to formally bring an end to the Pacific theory of World War II, the US had been working on the Manhattan Project, which of course, as we know now, were the first nuclear bomb tests by the United States. Now, at the Potsdam Conference, following the conclusion of World War II, the United States basically spill the beans about what they've been working on to Stalin in an attempt, as a show of force, if you will. That was what the whole bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it was not only to knock the Japanese and coerce them into surrender, into surrender sorry, <laughs> but it was a show of force to the Soviets, when you consider just how close Japan is to the Soviet Union. What the West hadn't realised was that Stalin already knew about the bomb. As a matter of fact, not only did he already know, the Soviets already had the technology and were already already developing their own. And that now, granted, they wouldn't come into effect and their tests wouldn't come into effect until before the Korean War, which would go into nineteen into the fifties. So, they're remembered for the Soviets are remembered for Stalin and Lenin, but when Stalin died. That was when the ball really began to change. You have, well, I try and keep these episodes relatively bite-sized, but there is honestly so much history about the Soviet Union, but to do a full episode on it, I'd be here for a good couple of hours. So we're going to take it out bit by bit. So, Stalin dies, and then you have a, quite a few leaders here and there, but the next major one that you'll get is Nikita Khrushchev. So, who is he? What was his shtick? 
Well, let's get into it. So you may have heard the word de-Stalinization thrown about quite a bit. Stalin dies in 1953, eight years after the end of World War II. In comes Nikita Khrushchev, and like Gorbachev, who will come after him, the Soviet Union goes down a very different path. Now, Khrushchev, the best way I can describe it, is almost kind of like a beta version for what Gorbachev will implement later on. He does fair play to uh, Khrushchev. He does implement more creative freedoms than Stalin would have ever allowed in the Soviet Union. He allows for more freedom of expression, and he allows for people to have a bit more of a say and, you know, to criticize what's going on. But don't don't get it twisted. The Soviet are still very much ruling with an iron fist. The prob- the way to look at it is they've merely relaxed their grip albeit very, very slightly. Um, another notable thing at this point, you know, prior to the Cold War, is the space race, um, which had been an go- ongoing mini-thing between the US and Russia, now, or the Soviets, sorry. And the Soviets took a very early lead in this race. They not only launched the first ever spa- satellite into Earth's orbit, obviously you have Sputnik, but you also have Yuri Gagarin, who is the first human to be sent up into space. Um, it won't be, of course, until 69 when America can better this by landing men on the moon with the Apollo missions. You also have a load of people now moving from their rural countryside to the cities. Industri- industry is growing ever more, but it's not like how Stalin tried to implement it. There's no five-year plans. The government aren't directly taking money straight out of their hands to force, to, to kind of like force industrialise, so to speak. Yes, the, the government is still very much keeping an eye on the money, and they do control quite a bit of it, but like I said, the, the overall grip is relaxed now. Um, you also had tensions now in Western East Germany. So to to give this a, a quick split up, following World War Two, the Allies would occupy Germany. So you had the US, the UK, and the Soviets, and I believe part of France, who would ocu- basically occupy and slice up bits of what were Nazi Germany. Now, obviously the Soviets took quite a, quite a big chunk of the East. The Rhineland, I believe, was occupied by the Americans. Uh, and then you have Bavaria to the South. But... One interesting tidbit was the city of Berlin, and whilst the city itself, like the full limits, were in the Soviet occupation zone, the city itself was divided equally between West and East. The West was more so a capitalist regime, and it would be how you could tell the difference. Whereas you had East Germany, which was still very much bland, very desolate. You, You could tell the difference. And as a matter of fact, Here's your fun fact for this episode. Even today, today in 2022, you can see the ramifications of World War Two. So if you go, if you look at like photographs from space, like at, particularly at nighttime, and you look at Germany, you can see a very distinct pattern in the lights. So what I mean by that is if you look from above, you can see lights which look more iridescent and which look a lot brighter compared to lights which look a bit more dimmer and a lot more orange. The reason for this is because West Berlin, well, West Germany, 
had a lot more advanced technology given by the Allies helping them rebuild, and they had access to more efficient lighting. The Rush, well, this, whilst the Soviet half, like you know, the East Germany, so to speak, had more antiquated lights, and they weren't as efficient power grids. I, something to that effect, and that is still seen from space. You can look at pictures from the International Space Station, other cameras in orbit around the planet. It's actually very interesting to see. And and for all that um, Khrushchev did, it's very, very hard to compare that with Gorbachev. Now, whilst Khrushchev laid the foundations, Gorbachev would be the man that would bring, ironically enough, bring, bring the Soviets further further into the modern limelight, but also equally bring, bring about the end of the Soviet Union. So how did that happen and what did Gorbachev do? Well, let's see. Then enter who will be the final leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, who is the man responsible for the most economic and social reformations to bring the Soviet Union to a close. Now, he brings his policies of glasnost and perestroika, which, when you translate to English, quite literally means openness and reconstruction. Now, the Soviet economy, for lack of a better term, had absolutely flattened. Like, we're talking like a flan in a cupboard level of stagnation. It was absolutely horrible. And the more and more the West prospered throughout Europe, the more jealous that the Warsaw Pact countries and the other Soviet republics of the USSR were jealous. And they wanted some of that. They wanted a better economy. They wanted a better standard of living than what they were given. But finally, Gorbachev pulled through on the promises. He said what he, he set about what he was planning to do. He wanted openness in the Soviet Union, and he wanted to reconstruct the economy. But unlike Khrushchev and Stalin before him, who just weren't willing to listen or didn't make the change happen, Gorbachev stuck to his word. He made those changes, and he made them happen. And, and it gets to the point as well where you have, like, the first ever McDonald's and Pizza Hut opening up in in Moscow, which was massive. Like, and it sounds so silly, but it honestly was because the, the Soviets were so against the Western media and Western, you know, outlets that could spill into the East because the best situation, again, is, like, East and West Germany. Anybody going from East Germany who, you know, pre-Berlin Wall could travel to West Berlin, like, you know, from East and West, and could see the prosperity and think, yeah, you know what, maybe communism really isn't what we need. Maybe I'm, I'm not so keen on this. And it wouldn't be until 1989 when Gorbachev stepped down, but you finally see, you finally see the end of the Cold War, because the Soviets realise it just ain't working anymore. You know what I mean? Like, and it's, and it's hard to believe. What happens and what is established back in 1923 is seen as the answer to all of their problems. And not even a century later, they abolish, well, they don't abolish communism, but they throw it straight out the window because it just doesn't work for them anymore. Um, now, if you're watching this on, or, well, not watching, sorry. If you're listening to this on Spotify um, or on Anchor.fm 
or any of the platforms that you can watch this on. You can probably see the uh, picture that I've chose to use for uh, the, the cover for this particular episode. And I found it very interesting because it's a kind of, it's a, it's a sense of freedom, if, you, if that makes sense. It's expression as a person. You know, Western apparel, Western media reached the East, it reached the Soviet Union. But this is under a time where even under Khrushchev, like I said, it was very, very heavily censored what could and couldn't get through. But now Western media is coming through and the people are beginning to see what is, what's trendy, what's fashionable. And I think it's very interesting that you see it, especially with the Kremlin in the background. This Russian, now the Russians are beginning to see what they've been missing out on. And I think it's a very pivotal moment. And I think it's one that is definitely indeed talked about, but for me personally, not so much enough in schools. Like, personally, when I was growing up in secondary school, we were spoon-fed a lot of World War Two, World War One. We would touch on the Cold War, but you would never get given a proper education about it. And granted, now that I think about it, that's just because even if you did get taught the Cold War throughout all of your five years of secondary school, you still wouldn't have enough time to cover everything that you needed to cover. It was actually incredible just how much happened. And like I said, this is a relatively compressed episode that I'm doing on the Cold War. To, to even begin to cover all of the details about the Cold War, I would I would need at least two hours. Two hours straight up sitting here talking about it. It really is madness. Now granted, feature length episodes, longer episodes for topics that I'm more passionate passionate about could well be a thing in the future. I'm not entirely sure. Of course, the podcast is still early days. I'm getting to, I've yet to see analytic, analytics rather about how it goes. But it could well be a thing. And then comes to the end of the book. So the countries of the Warsaw Pact, the you know Eastern Europe, they begin to topple their Marxist regimes, the communist regimes. And basically the Soviet Union is beginning to dissolve. Now instead of, now instead of you know the Russian Socialist Soviet Republic, you now have the Federal Republic of Russian, of which the president emerges to be Boris Yeltsin. And all of the countries will begin to leave one by one. And on December twenty fifth, nineteen ninety one, the Soviet Union is officially dissolved. And all the countries are well, for lack of a better term, free. They can make their own laws, they can make their own flag, they can do whatever they want. They're not tied to Moscow anymore. They're free. And it's a very liberating thing. And you'll see many videos and photos of, you know, the what what is now the Russian flag being replaced. Like, you know, they rip down the hammer and sickle and they put the Russian flag up instead. And it's very very symbolic. You know, similar to that of the Berlin Wall. And that's it. And it's hard to believe that this only happened. I mean, I was born in 2000. The Soviet Union was dissolved in 91. Like, it wasn't long ago at all. 31 years. It's incredible to think just how major a power the Soviet Union was. And, you know, when it existed, it had the largest standing military in the world. And at its peak, had the second best economy, if I'm not mistaken. Ironically, only behind America, the United States. And that brings to an end this episode, um, the Soviet Union. It is a very big can of worms. Again, if 
if any of any of the fun facts, any of what I brought up today interested you further, again, I do implore you to do your own further research. The Cold War, the Soviet Union in general, it is such an interesting area of history for me. And I I personally do quite love it. I I lament the fact that I wasn't taught it quite enough in school. But I also love it at the same time because I got to learn so much for myself. And I hope that even a little bit of what we talked about here today, again, either helps you in remembering what you have to learn for that one assignment, or whether you learn a random little tidbit. Now, as for the next episode, whether or not I go chronologically and continue through the 50s, whether I pick a topic like Korea or Vietnam, Cambodia, I'm not entirely sure. I may even go further back, you know pre-1900s, maybe a topic that is the very age of, like, the beginning of the modern age. I'm not entirely sure as of yet. Now, I know Spotify doesn't allow for comments, it only allows you for likes. Anchor FM, again, I'm not sure if it allows for comments, but I would want to hear your thoughts. Let me know what you think the next episode should be. But, um, and I will hopefully post an update when I've decided and when the next episode will be. But as for now, this has been a wonder through the history section. I've been your host, Oliver, and I thank you for joining me. Goodbye.